At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Gist is brought to you by The Message. Have you heard The Message? It's an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Season one is available now. So listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, November 23rd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In a week, there's going to be a big global summit in Paris on climate change. But now, even now, all the pledges are in. The countries will be attending the summit have made pledges on what their carbon emissions are going to be. Now, I come from the world of public radio. I know something about soliciting pledges. I wonder if the collecting of pledges went a little like this. And it is our climate change pledge drive. If you are within the sound of my voice and you value high quality, serious, important, award-winning earth, I ask you to pledge now. If you value, if you want to say, I support Earth, if you're a fan of Earth, and if you're wondering, well, others will support Earth, does Earth need my support? Yes, yes, Earth can't do it without you. It is you, you are the number one helper of Earth. Let's see who pledged. Let's go over to the phones. Here we have United States. United States with a pledge of 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2025. Thanks, USA. And let's go here, China. China has pledged that by 2030, they envision a peak in emissions in that year, that their emissions will peak in 2030 and then go down. Uh, Mike, doesn't that mean that they're going to be polluting even more than they've already been polluting for the next 15 years? Yes, I think it does. And thank you, China. So thank you, thank you, China. Here's another pledge in the European Union. The European Union will generate 40% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. Ooh, ooh. And they get a free wind-up radio for that pledge. Japan! Japan's in with a pledge. We thank you so much, Japan. Japan has pledged a 26% reduction in emissions by 2030 with nuclear energy providing 20 to 20% of the electricity by then. I can't foresee anything going wrong with that. Thank you so much, Japan. And here we have the world's, actually the world's eighth largest emitter. It's Iran. Iran has made an unconditional pledge to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions in 2030 by 4%, 4% Iran. You know, they've got a lot on their plate for 2030. Lots of stuff happening right around 2030. If you're listening to this, if you're in the sound of my voice, if you're, if you're a Malawi, if you're in Uzbekistan, and you're saying this isn't about me, this is about you. And we also have a matching grant. A matching grant, your pledge will be matched by a generous donation from the Julius B. and Catherine T. Wind Foundation. So wind will match your grant. 
And if you're still undecided, or if like Kiribati, you're still underwater, now is the time to pledge. Don't wait. Because you know, for the price of a cup of coffee, for the price of the cup of coffee that you buy from the diner, it turns out you can actually buy a third of a cup of coffee from Starbucks. I don't know why I mentioned that. It doesn't seem relevant, but call now. This is the 2015 pledge drive. We're trying to get world temperatures to raise by six degrees and not eight degrees. So it still means a massive amount of flooding and crop failures, but you'll know you did your part and everyone will know it when you have that tote bag that tells everyone that you helped the glaciers melt a little bit less than they have been melting. All right, now back to our marathon of Star Trek doo-wop singing and Lord of the Dance. Call now. On the show today, I take us on a rollicking spiel through Brussels and through your own fear. But first, a comic icon, a comic genius, a comic record setter, and a Canadian at that, Mr. David Steinberg. Well, you know you've made it in show business when they can't even get an accurate estimate of how many Tonight Shows you've appeared on. <laughs> David Steinberg is the all-time leader. Is it 130? Is it 140? We don't know because the kinescopes are lost. Yeah. David Steinberg is a legendary, and when you say that word, it seems past tensey, a legendary comic performer and a director. He has a documentary about him called Quality Balls, which is uh, largely about his Showtime series Inside Comedy. And he and I have something in common. I have zero Tonight Show appearances, but about 300 podcasts under my belt. And David's starting a podcast. I do have a podcast, yes, and, and a very creative title for it. It is? The David Steinberg Podcast. Which has echoes of The David Steinberg Show, which was your show. <laughs> yes. I mean, we could start anywhere in your career, and this is sort of in the middle, but you yep. kind of SCTV. Yes. The great Canadian comedy troupe, I think yes. the Cognoscenti, will say, goes right up there with the first two casts of Saturday Night Live, could go head-to-head, -head. Yeah. brilliant. But you, I don't know if you discovered them, but you gave so many of them their first shot on TV. They were all my babies. Yeah. I went to Toronto to do a show. We had a notion for what the show should be, which was sort of a little bit like what the Larry Sanders show was, mm -hmm. Gary's brilliant a show. Peak behind the scenes. Yeah, peak behind the scenes. Right. I had already been at Second City for quite a few years, so I was sort of known for that. And John Candy was, was the first one I, I met, and he, he brought them all in. Marty Short came in. He was just so peculiar and and freakish the way he was talking, and I, I you know I didn't I said what are you doing? And everyone else was just laughing that I didn't know what he was doing, which was an impression of me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never heard an impression of me. Yeah, my voice is very high pitched, but with Marty, it's you know he goes Exa a little that, bit exaggerated that, that yeah. high. They were off the charts, uh, brilliant. Joe Flaherty, Joe Flaherty, Dave Thomas. John Candy, Catherine O'Hare, Andrea Martin. They were spectacular. How long did that show? What network and how long? It was on CTV. Yeah. It was on for a year. And we had the biggest stars that Canada ever had on TV because I, I already had a reputation in the States. Me so, meaning the biggest American stars. The American yeah, stars. Yeah, biggest stars. We had Richie, North American Richie stars. Pryor, John Voight, Elliot Gould. Ethel Merman, that Marty Short went crazy for Ethel. They all went crazy for Ethel Merman. And so th those were the stars. And Canada didn't have stars like that. But they didn't pick us up the next year, and they put on stars on ice instead. Well, there you go. Yeah. See, if we had skates on, we would still be on the air Wait, today. Wait, isn't that a Mel Brooks bit? Ethel Merman on ice? Am I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> they, 
their Canadians love <laughs> yeah. anyone on ice. Yeah. And it was shocking. Now, the guy who... You got George Burns in there. Who knew that if you had told your George Burns, you just need to do a little curling, we'll get renewed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was the most fun show to do for all of us. Do you we think... were shocked that it didn't get picked up. It's amazing. So let's talk about progressivism and your politics. You would wear it on your sleeve, <laughs> yes. especially when you do big shows, Smothers Brothers. They agreed with you. Johnny Carson... The audience always questioned, but you believe that Johnny was right with you when you were criticizing the Nixon administration early on? Yeah. He, we didn't talk about it openly even amongst ourselves, but you know, he, he was very political and ultimately couldn't stand what was going on with Nixon. But he, at that time, having a show, if he just even gave a, an opinion that was a little off-center for what CBS or NBC, especially mm -hmm. at that time, had. They would call him in and say, you can't be doing this. This is what represents us and all yeah. of that. So what do you think about today? Today, there's a flourishing of comedic dissent and points of view, and yeah. most of it from the left. That's great. Free speech is great. But as a comedian, is it good to have a little danger, a little something to push back on, knowing that you're transgressing? I think it's the most important thing. You have to push the envelope. You have to be willing to say what no one's going to say. You have to have a sense of rebellion in you. And you have to be able to say, if this means my career, my point of view is pretty important to me. I'm going to go with my point of view. Your career, how was it ever threatened because of your point of view? Totally. Well, first of all, the Nixon dirty tricks and, you know, I had no idea. You, you, I'm a comedian. I'm from Winnipeg. You know, you're asking me about Marty Short, John Candy. The, that's my community. That's your milieu. That's my yes, milieu. Yes, yes. I didn't know that Nixon was talking about me and Ehrlichman. And... You were literally on the list of the enemies list. Yes. You were I was literally on, on yeah, the enemies yeah, list. And there are yeah. tapes. I know there are tapes of him saying, Dick Cavett, is this guy Jewish? What can we do about Dick Cavett? Yeah. Are you on any of the Nixon tapes? I didn't listen to enough of them, but I, I, I have a feeling that I'm there somewhere. Yeah. Because they, they might have just referred to me without referring to my name. I was too outspoken, more outspoken than anyone against uh, Nixon and the administration. What they would do is they would, everywhere that I went, someone would heckle me. Yeah. The myth of stand-up comedy is that people heckle you. People don't heckle you. If someone's drunk, they might want to help you. Yeah. Hey, David, I love what you do. But they're not really against you. These people were saying, don't talk about Nixon. You don't know me. So it was like it was like that. So it was it was scary. But we still didn't put it to the government because I couldn't imagine that it mattered so much to them. It's unfathomable. But in fact, Nixon hired these hecklers. They yes, worked for Nixon. Absolutely. And and in fact, where it became clear to me is during Watergate. Yeah. One of the guys that was looking after me was sitting behind. He was saying, we're here to protect you from all the anti-Nixon people that are so around. So you show up on campus. Some guy would introduce yeah, himself. Says, no, yeah, I'm going to help you. you. Yeah, we're going to protect you. And uh, when Watergate occurred, he was sitting behind behind Segretti. Donald Segretti. Donald Segretti. Yeah. The dirty tricks guy. And that's when I realized, my God, uh, uh, these guys were just investigating and took, taking, taking names, taking all my friends' names. Do yeah. you think, so you mentioned you're from Canada, you're from Winnipeg. Yes. Do you think there's a Winnipeg-Nebraska connection, Sons of the Prairie, between you and Johnny? Was that part of his, why he liked you so much? That's a little deeper than I've ever examined <laughs> my relationship with him. <laughs> but it's, uh, y yeah, you might say that, yeah. He was a huge star. 
but he was a very down-to-earth guy with me. The image, so as a performer, I mean, no one could gainsay his brilliance, but the image is a little shut off, didn't enjoy life that much, didn't socialize, very guarded. You well, saw him differently. Yeah, yeah, I saw him differently. Actually, the wives that he had, the Joannes and Jones, they were great women, and they made him socialize. And he little group of, of friends then that we would see at the parties. At the parties, he was very comfortable. He had a little bit of a drinking problem at the beginning, although I'm Jewish, so if a guy has a drink, they have a drinking problem. So I'm not sure how much of a drinking problem. Wait, is that Manischewitz? Okay, that's a drinking problem then. Ding, ding. That, that's my drinking problem. Did you compare him, I don't know, in fame or in sociability? You knew the stars of the earlier era, the biggest comedy stars, Jack Benny, Groucho Marx. Were they yeah. like Johnny personally in ways? Well, he established a whole new style of comedy. So he was improvisational. He had to have information, which he did. Yeah. He couldn't talk about a book unless he read it. And if he didn't read it, he would, he would say that. So he, he had a, an attachment to the culture that the older stars didn't have. But the older stars had an almost caricature version of themselves that they played. Groucho, who I also spent a lot of time with, was, you know, mo- mostly George Kaufman and S.G. Perlman wrote his great stuff. But he can't do, can't do better than that. No, yeah, no. Yeah. He was sardonic and funny and uh, not easy to be with. But he was really quick and not just quick because he knew what the quote unquote yes. Groucho response would yes. be. He was extremely quick. Yeah, he was. Was Jack uh, yeah. Benny like that, too? Jack Benny was the butt of everyone's jokes. Yeah. He was a shy person. He would laugh. He just laughed so easily, especially at George Burns, and they were best friends, and their wives were friends. They came out of the movie business in a way, but mostly radio, and coming from radio really helped them establish their personalities. So the new podcast, is it sort of going to be an extension of the Showtime show, comedians talking about comedy and craft? Yeah. My first interview is with Gilbert Gottfried. Uh-huh. It is so... I, I can't imagine ever doing a podcast as good as that one because he's just he knows everything about the culture and he knows everything about the past culture he's obsessed with it he's, he's obsessed, obsessed with, with Bella Lugosi yeah, he, he uh, does great impressions of people and they're spot on but no one's heard no, their voices no one's for 30 that. years no he does that all through the first <laughs> thing with me and uh, he does a hilarious Bob Hope no one knows Bob Hope anymore David Steinberg's new podcast is The David Steinberg Podcast and that was David Steinberg hey <laughs> great to meet you great to talk to thank you thank you Mike great to talk to you too I enjoyed it really Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
Search for the message on iTunes. I'll help you with that search. It's right around number one. And now the spiel, fear itself. The manhunt for Salah Abdeslam, suspected of having been one of the terrorists who killed 130 Parisians, has taken on citywide implications. Now, the city is Brussels, Belgium, where ABC's Matt Gutman took us this morning on Good Morning America. That alert means that a possible terrorist attack is imminent. One reason this entire city, as you mentioned, is on lockdown. Entire city on lockdown, Matt Gutman tells us, as he walks through the streets of Brussels, certain areas he highlights. Very tense here in Molenbeek. We've seen dozens of officers like that, guns at the ready, wearing ski masks, apparently searching a house in connection with Salah Abdel Salam. Why then, you might ask, is American journalist Matt Gutman walking around? wearing not one but two rakish scarves, telling us that no one is walking around. So Gutman wouldn't want to undercut that eerie air of a deserted street by indicating that he's actually out on the street and someone's filming him. But he does do a thing that journalists don't always do. He includes footage of a policeman yelling at him, hey, idiot, your press credentials aren't a shield. Jumpy officers hurting pedestrians and journalists back. If we start shooting, you're in the crossfire. Jumpy soldiers. Maybe they've been listening to Matt Gutman's total lockdown alerts. Now, it was scary, of course. There was a lot of police in the street. To be clear, the authorities in Brussels, according to the New York Times, did remind residents they were free to leave their houses. So it's that kind of lockdown, though they were told to avoid unnecessary travel to busy places and comply with a potential security check that kind of lockdown. But yes, it's more police presence than Belgium's seen since World War II. And I get it. I get ISIS is scary. I really do. You have got to be crazy not to think that they're scary. The question is what to do with that fear, how to react to it, how to address it, how to process it. So President Obama yesterday was asked at a press conference, how can you tell Americans not to be afraid? Here's what he said. But there's a difference between being vigilant and being... uh, concerned and taking this seriously and taking precautions and in some cases changing uh, you know, our security arrangements as we've done, for example, in aviation. There's a difference between smart applications of, of law enforcement and military and intelligence uh, and uh, succumbing to the kind of fear that leads us to abandon our values to abandon how we live, to abandon or, or, or change how we treat each other. It's the right thing to say. It won't make a difference. There are all these studies that show when fear meets reason, fear always wins. I suppose we'd not have evolved if it didn't win. Now, the terrorist attack type of fear, that is the type of fear that we're extremely susceptible to. They're seemingly random. They're out of control. They make a big splash. They get lots of media attention. So much about them is unknown. Planning for them is impossible. There's so much uncertainty that you can't anticipate and you can't mentally map out a plan. Let's look at fires. Fires are a lot worse than terrorists. Fires kill a lot more people. And fires have elements that are random. And like a terrorist attack, fires might spring up unexpectedly. But we don't fear fires like we do terrorists. There are efforts called fire prevention. 
and we know they work to some extent to lessen the impact of a fire or to lessen the chance of a fire. We have fire trucks, we have fire men, and they know how to put out a fire. There is a script of what to do if your home is enveloped by fire. There is even a best practices guide to dealing with a fire, right? The message, stop, drop, and roll. That empowers us, that gives us tools, that eliminates uncertainty. Terrorism. Well, with terrorism, there's a debate about practically all elements of fighting terrorism. We have fires, right? Let's take fires. There's a fire code, right? We have Smokey Bear. He talks to kids. He's a big, friendly animal. We have nothing like that with terrorism. Compare the message about fires, right? Here's a message about how to prevent fires. Thoroughly douse all embers when you're done camping. How about that? That is an action item that has specific nouns. Now, here's the equivalent message as regards terrorism. If you see something, say something. That is a conditional statement that means nothing. So I thought I'd say something. Because of fear, because we have this lack of a mental map about how to deal with fear, we get reactions like this one. A threat directed at Washington, D.C. is causing angst for those with travel plans to our nation's capital. Yeah, it also caused a mad scramble by Connecticut educators to reschedule at least one middle school trip. About 250 of Kevin Gebhardt's classmates at Timothy Edwards Middle School were set to head to Washington, D.C. Tuesday morning. This was not the only school to cancel a trip to D.C. And by that, I mean this was not the only school from the state of Connecticut. Because of the ISIS attacks in Paris, they chose not to go to D.C. I understand fear. I sympathize with the desire to protect children, to circle the wagons, because Washington, D.C. seems much less safe than staying at home in a public school in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. I don't blame our nature. Were it not for our nature, we'd have been eaten by nature 30 or 40,000 years ago. I don't exactly blame our leaders. A couple hundred years ago, some people decided it'd be good if this country were a democracy, as a consequence, you can't blame popularly elected leaders who do the thing that's popular with the electorate. That said, it would be nice to have leaders who help us through the fear. And I want to end this spiel by playing the words of a leader who I actually think is doing that, even though it's very, very hard for most of us to listen. They are dangerous, and they've caused great hardship to people. Uh, but... The overwhelming majority of people who go about their business every day, the Americans who are building things and making things and teaching and saving lives as firefighters and as police officers, and they're stronger. Our way of life is stronger. We have more to offer. We represent 99.9% .9 of humanity, uh, and that's why we should be confident that we'll win. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, pledges to reduce eye roll emissions by 30% after I tell her I'll have the spiel recorded by four. Andy Bowers pledges to reduce emissions of the pfft sound whenever someone tells him a serialized sci-fi podcast can't captivate and enlighten. The gist, we promise to eliminate emissions of apophenia. You know, apophenia. It means seeing meaningful patterns or connections in essentially random and meaningless data. You know, one last emission of apophenia. It is this song, which is part of Dial a Song. They might be Giants' weekly contribution to knowledge, understanding, and pop 
Here is Apophenia. How could the streetlight blink on and off and spell out all your thoughts? That thing you thought you heard me say. I didn't say that thing. That is crazy. You're completely crazy. Pretty soon you'll be telling me that you had enough and you're leaving me. Picture of a hunched old lady holding a dog and telling you what to do. Seemingly random arrangement of turbid material telling you what to do. It's only tea leaves. Stop being dramatic. Next thing you'll be saying that I've been hallucinating. Down the window, I'm 